to Matthew chapter 4. That's where we're going to camp out today. Matthew chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the temptation of Christ today. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came, to, came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let's pray. Lord, would you impart in our own hearts this morning a reverent fear of your word, that we would fear and tremble at your word, knowing that we have in our hands the very word of God. As Hebrews says, Lord, the word that is sharp as a double-edged sword that cuts to joint and marrow, it, it cuts body and soul. So, Lord, would you cut us today and yet heal us at the same time with the double-edged sword? Help us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's message is entitled, The Temptation of Jesus, Our Conqueror, Part 1. Now, I want us to consider there's three different tests we see the Lord Jesus go through in the wilderness, and I want us to consider each in turn. But I find it interesting, when I, when I think about the topic, or when you think about the topic of temptation, I think in our own culture, the first thing people think, naturally think of is a little devil on this shoulder, and a little angel on the shoulder, and one's, one's whispering in your ear, and one's telling you to do good things. Or maybe when, when we hear temptation, we think of a, a dubious man on the street selling, selling drugs or something. Maybe that's what we think of. But I would actually say that temptation is, is much more tame than that. Temptation is actually much, it looks more, um, what's the word, palatable? It looks more um, uh, enticing, maybe. Uh, so how, the question is, how are we Christians to think of temptation in our lives? And to, do, and to do that, I want to lead us by, by giving a story, a story I heard. Um, it's probably made up. It's probably not true, but let's just pretend it is for a second, okay? Picture a wartime scene, um, maybe since even we have the war in Ukraine, just picture that, even that situation or that scenario. But picture in that wartime scene a family or a, or a man who acted as though the war wasn't happening. He's just wandering around, doing his normal life, going to the store, getting groceries, doing what he's needing to, living as though the war is not happening, all the while bombshells going off all around him. This part of his home's blown off, and he's like, man, what was, what was that? <laughs> Someone here? Like, what's, what's going on? And I'm, I'm fearful that sometimes as Christians, we, like, I think what I'm going to give us today is very simple. It's not complicated. 
But there's a piece of it that we, I think, we can hear it and we can think, of course, yeah, 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 I should expect temptation. But we really need to believe that. We, we need to not be like that man who's got a war going on all around him and yet living as though there isn't one. I, wanted, I want you to note, so jump, jump into the passage today and we'll, we'll look at it here together. So notice what verse 1 says. He, he says, uh, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. And I want to stop right there. Uh, it's interesting, if you remember what we've talked about the last three weeks, Jesus' baptism, that the Father said of the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descended upon Him. And so it's this pattern of God gifting Him, and yet then what's He do immediately? He doesn't send Him to do ministry immediately. Where does He t- send Him? He sends him to the wilderness. He sends him to be tempted. That, that should give us pause. And I think there's a pattern here we need to pay mind to. The progression of the passage, as we saw, was Jesus' baptism, the gifting. And the gifting then leads to temptation. And then the temptation, after the temptation, we're going to see him lead into ministry. So when we think about even ministers of the gospel... We should never just think, well, this person's gifted, so therefore they should be a part of ministry. This has shipwrecked many, 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 many churches. A man looks gifted, and they say, let's put him into ministry without any testing. And we see this is just not the pattern, even of the Lord Jesus. But I want you to consider, and I thought this was really helpful, Dan Doriani, he says this, he says, every gift brings temptation. The the gift of beauty tempts to vanity. The gift of strength tempts to domination. The gift of intellect tempts to manipulation. The gift of wealth tempts to indulgence. The gift of humor tempts to mockery. Every gift brings temptation. The gift equips the recipient to serve others, but tempts him to please himself. I want you to hear that one more time, that last line. The gift equips the recipient to serve others, but tempts him to please himself. God has just said of the Lord Jesus, you are my beloved son. It'd be really easy in that moment for him to be like, well, I'm the beloved son. And we're going to see the devil tempt him to turn, as he's hungry, turn this stone into bread. You're hungry. Why not? You're, you're the son. And I want you to see, if you're taking notes, this simple truth. All Christians must expect temptation, opposition, and war in this life. Yet Jesus' victory assures us that we can fight from a position of victory. So I want you to consider again, notice to the context of what we're seeing happen. Jump down to verses 1 and 2. He says, this is what God's Word says again. Then Jesus, after he was baptized, was led up by the Spirit. And I think Luke's Gospel makes it sound actually much more. It actually says that he, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now there's an ancient practice in kingdoms that when a king's son, before the king's son, can become the ruler of the kingdom, he would need to prove himself. And we see this even in other tribes and whatnot, that this would be like a season of temptation or a season of trying and testing. 
But the king's son needed to be tested to show or prove himself worthy. And this is exactly what we see happening here. And brothers and sisters, if this is true of our Lord, how much more so for us? If this is true just, just of, the, of the Lord of the universe, of Jesus himself, how much more is it, should, should it be true of us? So if you're taking notes, I want you to see that as a Christian, you must expect to be tempted. You must expect to be tempted. Now notice again who it says drove Jesus into the wilderness. It doesn't say the devil was just a wily character who had his way and did what he wanted. It says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Who led Jesus? I didn't catch that. The Spirit led him up. Whoa, whoa, what do you mean, Daniel? What do you mean the Spirit led him up? We should not wonder if this temptation was from the Lord, then because the Spirit was just, the one who just anointed the Lord Jesus was the same one who led him into the wilderness. The Spirit was the one who led him to begin the mission that he's completing. It's the same kind of leading that we see even of the people of Israel in the Exodus. They're led out of slavery, and where are they led into? The wilderness. Why? To prove that they really love God. Now, there are two potential errors that we could do in this passage. The first error is that we blame God for the temptation. The second error is that we credit the devil with a power to act independently of God. Those are two errors, and I think we need to be very, very careful of them both. So I want us to see that God allows us to be tested, tested, but never tempts. God allows us to be tested, but never tempts. The nature of temptation is the same as everyone who's experienced it from the beginning of time. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was somehow imperfect, but what this means, so, so there's a practice, uh, at least in um, uh, I'm trying to, smithing, uh, like blacksmithing, that what they would do with a fine metal is you take gold, for instance, take gold, for instance, and you take the gold and you put the gold into a fiery furnace. And when that happens, it purges off or gets rid of all the impurities, Now, the nature of God's testing is much like that smithery work, because that nature of testing is God not tempting, but He's showing what's already there. He's showing what's in the metal in that sense. It was necessary that Jesus was tempted in order for Him to become a faithful high priest, like we saw the other week. And I want us to see that the Lord is not the one who tempts. He is not the one who tempts but he clearly uses Satan to accomplish his purposes. I want us to think about that for a second. That is so contrary to modern evangelical understandings of Satan. God uses Satan. I want to, did you hear that? I'm going to say that one more time. He uses him to accomplish his purposes. The same way that I would use a rake out in the yard, God uses the devil. <laughs> James 1, I want you to notice what he says. James 1, 13 through 15, says the same thing. Let no one say when he is tempted, 
I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Okay? Don't miss that. God is not the one who tempts. But, here's the contrary. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed. It's this, this language that's very, like, animalistic. Lured and enticed by what? His own desire. And the difference between me and you and Jesus is he didn't, he didn't need to be lured and enticed in that sense. The desires that came out of him when he was tested were pure. It's so unlike me and you. Then, verse 15, then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. We are tempted when we are led astray by our own sin which is why the Lord needed Jesus to be led into the wilderness. He had no sin nature, which meant that he was not lured by the desires of his own flesh. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that God is sovereign even over the temptations which come our way. I want to say that one more time. God is sovereign even over the temptations that come in our way. This means that grumbling... I'm speaking to my own heart and my own flesh in this. That means that even in our grumbling, we show what we're trusting in. We show what we love. We often speak of temptation as though God is somehow battling it out with Satan, like tick for tack, back and forth. It's not that way. We speak as though the battle between darkness and light is somehow equal. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness, but does not tempt him. But like all temptation, God uses Satan's tactics for his purpose. We've seen it before in Job, and I'll show it to you again. Genesis 50, 20, with Joseph being led. Joseph has lived his whole life being sold into slavery. And this is what he says at the end of it. As for you... You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And this is how God's, God works. This is the economy that we even see of temptation. So as a Christian, we must expect to be tempted. This is not the only thing we see in this passage. Notice, jump down to verse 2. This is very intriguing, but I, I want us to draw mind to it. It says in verse 4, or verse 2, and after fasting, this is, Je- now this is back to Jesus again. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Obviously. Obviously he was hungry. Why? Because he's still a human. He was not superhuman in that way. When he, got to, when he worked hard, he got tired. When he didn't eat, he was hungry. Jesus was led into the wilderness. This is the second point under that first bullet. Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tested. Now the scene, I want you to remember this scene because it's eerily familiar from what we've seen other places in the Bible. When Israel was led into the wilderness, what do we see God start to do with them? Let me give it to you. Exodus 15, they just crossed the Red Sea. They don't go three days of crossing the Red Sea, being brought through deliverance. This is what God says. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. Hear it again. Saying, 
if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, do and do what is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandment, and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Or, or take just a few verses later, when they needed the manna to be fed in the wilderness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Do you hear it again? He's not doing it because he's a bully. He's doing it because he loves them, and he's proving what's in them. And you know what they said? They said much like what I would say. Exodus 16, 3, just listen to what they said then in response to this. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Grumbling, complaining, whining. Now Israel is a reminder to us that we are just like them. When we see this passage of Jesus in the wilderness, we should not see and think, well, man, I'm just like Jesus. We should actually see, I am not like him. I'm very much not like him. Actually, what we should see is I'm actually much more like them. And they failed over and over and over and over again. You know the phrase hangry? I love using that phrase, actually, because I get very hangry. It's, it's hunger and anger. So it's hunger induced by, or anger induced by hunger. And the pangs of hunger oftentimes remind us of our need for God, or our need that we're not self-sufficient. And we get angry because we don't have our bellies full. So as a Christian, you must expect to be tempted now, most of the temptation, temptation that you and I face on a daily basis don't have to deal with turning rocks into bread, okay? But the pangs of hunger remind us of the desires of in each of us to be satisfied. So I want you to notice the challenge. Look, at, look down in verse 3. So Jesus was hungry. He's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, just like Moses, just like Elisha did. Listen to what he says. The tempter came, verse 3, basically asking the same thing that he asked Eve in the garden, but in a different way. Listen, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Simple enough. You're about to feed 5,000 people. Why not just turn one, one, one rock into a bread and eat, be satisfied? And I want us to see that as a Christian, if you're taking notes, you must expect to be opposed by the evil one. So not only should you, should you expect to be tempted, you should expect, you must expect, to be opposed by the evil one. Now notice again what the tempter says to him. He says, if you are the Son of God. Now I want you to pay mind to this. This is not the devil questioning Jesus' sonship. Okay, this is not him saying, well, I'm not really sure if you are the Son of God. This is actually him saying, you are the Son of God. Since you're the Son of God, do this. Satan is assuming it's true and then tries to convince him of a certain action based on the fact that it's true. You are the Son of God. Therefore, 
command these stones to become loaves of bread. You know what the difference between a Christian and Satan is? That, that's a very weird question, but I want you to consider it. The difference between a Christian and Satan is not that they know less or more. Satan knows right now more than all of us in this room combined about God. And he hates him. He hates him from the depth of his being. He hates him. So it's not a knowledge problem. We, we don't need to be like, well, we, we should really get Satan into a program that he can get more knowledge about God and he figures out what God's like, then he'll love him. No, that's not the answer. He hates him. He knows all the truth, but he hates him. The Christian is able to acquire truth, but only then truly a Christian becomes lovely in that sense, or they begin to love from the heart. So I want you to see that Satan challenges Jesus to act in self-interest. Say that again. Satan challenges Jesus to act in self-interest. The heart of sin is placing self ahead of God. That was, base, that was the basic sin of Israel in the wilderness, and that is our, all our basic sin. And Satan acknowledges Jesus as Lord, and he's trying to get him to misuse his authority. Now, for a temptation to actually be a temptation, it has to be enticing, okay? So if I told you, hey, uh, when we go outside today, uh, how about you lick the concrete? You'd be like, I don't think I'm going to do that. I don't really have any desire to do that at all. Do you notice that? If I, or if I said, uh, I, just pick something. <laughs> pick something ridiculous. That if you have no desire at all to do it, it would mean nothing. But if I said to you, you hadn't eaten all day, and I was frying up a real nice juicy steak, and I said, would you like a steak? The answer would be like, oh, yeah, of course. Why? Because I'm hungry. Because I desire, I need this. I'm hungry. You may wonder, well, well, okay, hold on. Why would it be so wrong that Jesus would turn this bread, this one rock into a bread in that way? Because he's about to feed 5,000 people. He's about to feed 4,000 people. Why, what would it matter? I want you to notice, though, who's the benefactor of the, fact, of the miracle. In this instance, he would be the only benefactor. He'd be the one who is being satisfied. And Satan is trying to get Jesus to be self-serving in his use of power. He has all power. We just heard it. We just heard God say, you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. And you know what Satan says? Hey, did you hear what God said? You should do this. You should do what God said. Go, turn the bread, turn the loaf into, or turn the rock into a loaf. Satan is trying to get Jesus to do the opposite of what Philippians 2.6 says. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's trying to get him to grasp the thing that's his. Grasp it. It's yours. Here's the second thing. Satan challenges Jesus to act outside of God's plan for him. So Satan challenges Jesus to act in self-interest, but he also gets him, try, is trying to get him to act outside of God's plan for him. What Satan is offering to Jesus here is a bloodless path to glory. 
Let me say it, say it one more time. What Satan is offering to Jesus right here is a bloodless path to glory. Because think about it. If Jesus is just walking around being a miracle worker, just turning, loaves, turning rocks into bread, he would be the next great magician in Israel. He could go, he could win the people's favor. Look, at, look, you hungry? You see how, how he's, he's tempting him, not only to use his self-interest, but he's tempting him to act outside of God's plan for him. And it's in this reason, as we pause here, that we see just how unlike Jesus we are. Like I said at the beginning, the gift of beauty tempts to vanity. The gift of strength tempts to domination. The gift of intellect tempts to manipulation. The The gift of wealth tempts to indulgence. Let me give you another one. Think about these other gifts. As sex is a gift. Having, having sex before we were married, this was always something I remember being told as a young child, not just from my parents, but from others. Don't worry, you shouldn't have sex before marriage because it's just not that, it's better if you wait. That's, that's not true. We should, we should not tell them that. That's not helpful. Because scripture says, this is enticing, but you should not take it. Why? Because it's outside God's design. That's why. That's why. Or our job. Our job is a gift. So rather than working diligently, using our gift for the furtherance of God's kingdom and to be faithful in it, we lie on our timesheets because we just haven't, haven't had the time. You know, it's been a busy week. We're parenting as a gift. We have our children. We know that children are a gift from the Lord, and yet we are tempted to laziness and harshness. And in this way, we should be deeply humbled as we look at the Lord Jesus because we see how unlike him we are. But I don't want to leave us there because there is great hope in this passage. I want to pay special attention to the way that the Lord defended himself. Now notice what Jesus says in reply to Satan. And this is the key to the victory in temptation. I want to say this one more time. This is the key to our own victory in temptation. If the author of life and the Lord of our confession fought temptation in a particular way, we should probably take notice of it, and we should probably mimic it. And at the same time, Jesus also stands as one who is the true and better one who's overcome perfectly. So look at the way he corrects Satan. Notice what he says. Jump down to verse 4. But he answered, it is written. What what does he say? He doesn't say, you know, I'm the son of God. You shut up. No. No, he doesn't. He says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. As a Christian, you and I must fight as God prescribes. As a Christian, you and I must fight the temptations and the battle and the war at hand as God prescribes. Now, Jesus' response, notice what he says again. Jesus' response comes in two parts. It's the shield and it's the sword, okay? It's the defense and it's the offense. And that phrase, I want you to look at it again. But he answered, it is written, 
You know what he's doing in that moment? He's picking up the shield of faith, and he's saying, this is what God says. (laughs) This is the only time in history that the Word of God cites the Word of God as the Word of God. (laughs) He cites his own Word to Satan. How much more should we fight temptation? If this is how Jesus fights temptation, how much more so we? Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6. He says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And these are the two weapons that Jesus fights with. So I'm going to, look, I'm going to examine the first one. Jesus picks up the shield of of faith. Now notice again what he says. He says, it is written. He's in that moment, he's believing and trusting by faith. He's clinging to the very words that's in front of us to to slay the dragon. Then he cites a passage, and I want us to turn there real quick to Deuteronomy Eight. Actually, you know what? Just, it's, it's on the screen. You don't have to turn there. But he cites a passage, just what Jared read this morning, that remembers a day when the people of Israel were, were first in the wilderness. I want to hear Now listen to what they were doing in the wilderness. It says in Exodus, now Exodus is citing Deuteronomy, and Deuteron- Deuteronomy is citing Exodus in this way. Exodus 16.8, it says, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but it's against the Lord. They grumbled, they moaned, they complained, and what did God do? He fed them. He fed them when it looked like they had no food. And he fed them with manna from heaven, which literally means, what is it? What is that thing? We don't know what it is, but we know that God fed them. Deuteronomy 8, 3 he says this, reflecting on that. He says, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that we might make you know that a man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord was the one who fed them in the wilderness. So, so Jesus picks up the shield of faith and he says, It is written. Now, notice what he does then, too. So it's not just the shield of faith. He also picks up the sword, which is the Word of God. And he says, so he picks up the the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. But then the statement, which is profound, notice what he says. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now, before we get hyper-spiritual here, and we say, look, I don't need to eat. I just need to read my Bible. Okay? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, okay? Meaning, meaning bread only, okay? So there's, there's a need for food. You and I need to eat because God made us as body souls, okay? We are embodied souls. We need food, but we don't only need food. Notice what he says. Man shall not live by bread alone or bread only, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You need God's Word just like you need physical food. I want to say that one more time. You need God's Word just like you do physical food. I don't know about you, but I don't skip too many meals. You know why? Because when my belly grumbles, that means I'm hungry. 
That means feed me. That means give me something to eat. Now, let me ask you a question. If a Christian would go for a month without eating, what would we think? Or if just a person, an individual, went with a, for the month without eating, what would we say of that person? Something's wrong. Something's not right. But what about a Christian or someone who goes without God's Word for a month? What would we say of them? Something's wrong. Something's not right. Something is not okay. Picture with me a chef, even, if you will. And this is, this is just as true of me as it is of any of you. So I want you to hear this. Picture with me a chef who makes eloquent meals for others. He dishes up the best kind of food for all people all around, but is himself starving. What an oxymoron. What, what an ironic foolishness thing that a chef, he makes the best food, and he's never tempted for himself just to eat. Brothers and sisters, we need to be warned. There's much to be warned by in this passage. The Christian who thinks he knows God's Word but does not live and step with it is like that chef. You and I need Scripture like we need food physically. So neglecting the Bible is self-starvation. I want to say it one more time. Neglecting the Bible is self-starvation. We as believers need to believe what Jesus says here about the Word of God, which is that food alone will not satisfy us. There's actually a greater satisfaction, which is God's Word. And every time you and I face temptation, that it has to be where we come back to. That has to be the foundation we stand on. We must fight as God prescribes. Now, thus far, it's been very, very heavy. I've said, do, 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 do. Look out, expect, expect, and, and we must fight this way. But we also must realize that we are not like Jesus. Actually, we're, again, like I've said, we are the ones who have failed. So we must, this is the last point, as a Christian, you must rest assured in the victory of Christ. So we cannot just see this passage and think, well, man, I just need to read God's Word, and I'll do better. Life will get better for me. Maybe not. Or, like, because we are still finite, sinful beings. But the victory of Christ should be highlighted against a black backdrop of Scripture. We see Adam's failure, Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, that the, eye, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it, of its fruit, and ate. And she also gave some to her husband. Or here, Israel's failure. I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them at twilight, you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. We are the ones who are failures in that sense. Now, have you ever stopped to wonder why in movies and stories we love the hero? Have you ever wondered? Have you ever just watched like Marvel or Indiana Jones or anything? No one has to tell us who to like in those movies. No one has to tell us, hey, you should like Iron Man. Hey, you should like Captain America. Hey, you should like Harry Potter. You should like Frodo. You know why? Because heroes are beautiful. 
there's a certain beauty that comes from a hero. And there's no one that told us, hey, that's beautiful. You should like that. And movies that, that reek are the ones that try to flip it. And they try to make the enemy the one. Those are the movies that every single time they're like, oh, that was, that was gross. Why? Because heroes are beautiful. And their beauty is only a reflection. Every hero we've ever liked in any story is only a reflection, a very, very dim reflection of this hero. Of this hero who says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Heroes are beautiful because they reflect the beauty of Christ, even if they don't know him. They they reflect the beauty of the one who's so holy, who's so committed to God's plan, who so perfectly obeys that he liberates his people. Or again, as Grant Osborne says, he says, the goal of obedience to the Father is accomplished, not by triumphal self-assertion, Not by the power, not by excessive power and authority, but paradoxically by the humility, service, and suffering. Therein lies true greatness. So when you hear Christ say, man shall not live by bread alone, and you see, and we're going to see at the very end of this, the devil leaving him, we need to see our victory, friends, is secure. Our victory isn't wavering. It's not out there in the wind, depending on our own temptations, overcoming our own temptations. No. Hear him saying, as you hear him saying, man shall not live by bread alone. Hear him saying, I am coming to rescue my people and nothing will depart me from it. No temptation. I could turn that, bread, that rock into bread. I, do, I won't. You know why? Because I have a mission and I'm going to complete it. And he's going to go to the cross. This is where he's heading, long ways away from it in Matthew. But this is where he's heading. He's heading to the cross. No amount of temporary satisfaction will do. I will do what my Father has planned for me. So the question is then, how are we to live against temptation in light of Christ here? Very simply, it's this. As Hebrews 12.2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Or as Dane Ortland says, sinners are beautified as they behold the beauty of God in Jesus Christ. Let me say that one more time. Me and you are made beautiful when we see the beauty of our hero. When we look at the beauty of our hero here in this text and we see him overcoming the victory, we are beautified. And we actually can, can endure, we can endure persecution and temptation, not because we're strong, but because we're clinging to the one who is. In Christ's temptation, we find our victor. We find our hero, the one who has conquered. Now, we're going to take communion. I want us to turn and take communion. I want us to do so in light of the text we've just heard. We don't take communion because we're great. 
We take communion because we're clinging to the one who is great and who has overcome. So if your hope today is you're sitting there holding the bread, holding the cup, and you're thinking, man, I just, I've really struggled this week. I've, every temptation that's come my way, I've given in. You know what you do? You turn from your sin, you trust our victor, and you take communion. Because Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Our victor has come, so be beautified today. As we look at the beautiful one, be beautified. Now, I want to give a warning for those who are not beautiful in this sense. The person who's beautiful is not the one who's self-sufficient. The self-sufficient one is the ugly one. I want to say that one more time. It's completely opposite of what our world looks like. The one who has their life together is the one who's ugly. Let me say that again. The one who has their life together is ugly. They are the ones who are not clinging to Christ. But as we take communion, we're saying we're beautiful, not because we're beautiful, but because Christ is, is beautiful. So listen to the warning that he gives. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that would be to be self-sufficient. That would be to to cling to my own righteousness. That would be to say, I I don't need you, Jesus. Like I know, I'm sorry I failed this week, but I should have done better. This is not what this is for. Let go of those things and drink in a worthy manner, which is what he says. So, so, Drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And so this is, this is not for unbelievers. If you're, not, if you're not clinging to the Lord Jesus today, don't take this. This is not for you. But it's also not for the one who's, who's trusting in his own self. This is for the one who says, I cannot overcome, therefore I need someone else to overcome for me. So cling, take take of the cup, if that is you today. So if the deacons could come forward. uh